You turn over to the book of uh, Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7. And we're asking the question, which road are you on? And uh, Jesus is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount here, and he brings it to this great climax that we talked about last week, and he's really pressing them for a decision. And uh, just a quick review, last week we looked at um, basically there's a choice here, and, and he, he kind of lays out for us in the, the chapter 7 here, the remaining verses of chapter 7, two gates, two roads, two destinations, and two crowds. And he also goes on and uses a couple parables and whatnot, and we'll be looking at those. But there's always been a choice in God's Word throughout history. We talked last week about Moses putting a choice before the people whom you will serve today, Joshua, Jeremiah, Elijah, and then Jesus ultimately putting that before the people here in Matthew chapter 7. And the choice, as we talked about last week, between these two uh, gates is not a choice between Christianity and paganism. That would be too obvious. That's not the choice Jesus is making. The choice he's making is between divine righteousness, which only can come through God, through his son, Jesus Christ, and basically human achievement or human righteousness. Um, Both groups are religious people. There's many people gathered today. It's Sunday. There's people in churches all over the world, all over this country, who are gathered. But depending on their view of which gate they're walking through, are they walking through the gate of divine righteousness that can only come through Christ, or are they walking through a gate that says, well, I've got to work my way there? And it's up to me to humanly achieve righteousness. And we looked in depth last week about the Pharisees of, of Jesus' time and how they, they really looked at themselves as being righteous. They thought they had it all together. And, and so when Jesus came along and said, no, you've taken the law of God and you've made it your own. And he had to review with them the true law of God. And even if you lust in, a, in your heart after a woman, it's just as bad as committing adultery uh, and so forth. And he goes through various um, uh, commandments with them to help them understand that their kind of human created law of God wasn't good enough. It wasn't going to get them to heaven. It was just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo that they could keep and made them feel good about themselves. It would be kind of like us saying, you know, if if, to know whether or not you're a Christian, you'll be in church on Sunday and you'll pray before your meals and you'll read your Bible during the week and you'll do all those things. Now, Christians do those things, but you don't become a Christian by doing those things and that doesn't keep you a Christian by doing those things. Okay, their, their works and their righteous works, if they're done in the spirit, but they can also be done in the flesh. And the unfortunate thing today in the world, the church has dummied down the gospel to the point where the world comes in the church and they look around and they go, wow, this isn't much different than what we see at a concert on Saturday night somewhere. And so you have all these people and some churches you can walk in and it's kind of like you're at an Anthony Robbins conference. You know, it's just positive mumbo jumbo, worldly, self-ego driven self-righteousness and people buy into that just incredibly today because it makes them feel good about themselves. We're not here this morning to make you feel good about yourself. We're just not. That's not the kind of church we are. That's not what we strive for. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not up here to just insult you. We don't want to do that. But we want to show you the truth. We want to show you that divine righteousness is the only gate to walk through if you plan on going to heaven. And human righteousness would get you nowhere except one place, and that's hell. And so there are two gates. And he pointed out, we looked at last week, the narrow gate, and we looked at basically six things about that. And I'm just going to go through these first. First of all, you quickly, you must enter. We looked at this last week. You have to enter it. It's a command. Jesus gives that command. You have to enter the narrow gate. Um, and you have to make sure that you're entering the narrow gate and not the wide gate. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that <clears throat> today. You must enter the narrow gate alone. Nobody was ever saved in groups. I don't care if your parents were Christians and your grandfather was a pastor and everything else. That's great. But when it comes to your time and you pass away and you stand before God one day, it's not going to matter about those other people. He's going to ask you personally, one-to-one, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Did you commit your life to him? Did you bow at his feet? Did you allow him to be the Lord of your life? Or did you do things your own way? 
and try to figure it out on your own and create your own works and think that somehow you're going to stand before me and hold up your good works and think that that's somehow going to cancel out your sin. It doesn't work that way. And so you have to enter the gate alone. And you do that by searching wholeheartedly and you, and you strive for it wholeheartedly. It's not easy, we talked about last week. Some people make it too easy to get saved. People think that, oh, it's just a simple thing to get saved. Just pray this prayer, raise this hand, and you're on your way. It's not an easy thing. And anybody that's saved will say that they came to a point in time in their life where that was a struggle for them. They heard the gospel, and maybe the first time they heard it, they didn't respond. There was a struggle going on. And that word strive means to agonize over something that we see in Luke 13, 23. So you have to enter the gate alone, but you also have to enter the gate unencumbered. You can't bring anything in there with you. You have to leave everything behind. Um, Also, you have to uh, enter the gate repentantly. In other words, you turn from your sin. Your attitude about your sin changes and you turn to God. It's a change of direction. It's a change of heart attitude. And also, you have to enter the narrow gate in utter surrender. You can't be thinking, well, I'll try this one, and if this doesn't work, I'll go through you know, the trap door or something. It doesn't work that way. You have to be utterly committed to that, utterly surrendered to it. And the wide gate is just the opposite of the narrow gate, obviously. Well, today, this morning, we're going to look at two ways. See, the gates are the starting point, but those gates lead to two ways, two paths, you might think might think of it that way um and and jesus is kind of pressing us for a choice here he's he's pushing us into a corner and saying okay you're gonna you're gonna make a choice about in your life about a lot of things but there's ultimately one choice that is going to be very very important it's which gate are you going to go in are you going to go through the gate of jesus christ are you going to go through the gate of empty religion and those gates lead to two places. There was a man walking through a cemetery one time, and he saw a tombstone. It kind of caught his attention. And the epitaph said this. You may have heard this. It said, As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you are sure to be. So may I say, as now I lie, prepare yourself to follow me. Not bad. But he thought for a minute and he pulled out a piece of chalk. And here's what he wrote underneath that epitaph. He wrote two more lines to it. He said this, To follow you I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) That's an important point. Who are we following? Which way are we going to follow? What are these two ways that Matthew 7.13 says? Matthew 13 says there's a broad way. Matthew 14 mentions there's a narrow way or a hard way. You might think of it as a confined way. We read Psalm 1 for our scripture reading this morning, and Psalm 1 talks about those two ways. If you just look at it for a second, in verses 1 through 3, there's the way of the godly. In verses 4 to 5, there's the way of the ungodly. And then verse 6 tells the result of walking the ungodly way. Real simple way to outline that psalm. The choices are the same as they've always had. You can either go the way of godly or you can go the way of the ungodly. Nothing's changed. Okay, it doesn't matter what the culture's doing. It doesn't, you, know, you don't have to be culturally relevant or tuned into the culture to figure this out. It's the same choice that Moses, that Jeremiah, and the others gave the people of God before them way back in the Old Testament. So let's look at the first one, the broad way. He mentions there in, in verse 13, the broad way. Um, one thing about the broad way, he says, we'll just read this, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate for the... For the wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. See, once you go through the broad way, the the broad gate, and you're on the broad way, really, it's a way of easy living. Think of it that way. There's no uh, danger involved. Have you ever been on a hike, maybe up to Yosemite, and you get on some of those trails, and you're hiking up maybe to Half Dome or something, and you get on some of those trails, and you look over the edge... And it's a pretty hefty fall. If you fall, you probably die. And you're walking kind of carefully. You're not up there, you know, just blindfolded going, yeah, I'll just take a hike up the half dome. No, you want to see where you're going. Why? Because one wrong step 
and you, you could fall to your death. That's the idea of the narrow way. See, here, there is no precipice to fall off. It's just this wide, open, plenty of room to stroll, to go any direction you want. There's no rules. There's no morality. There's room for all kinds of beliefs and theology. It doesn't make any difference what you believe. There's a tolerance for sin of every kind. Just as long as you love Jesus or just as long as somehow you're religious, you go to your faith, your house of worship. See, there are no boundaries. All of the desires of the fallen heart are fed on that way that, that goes through the wide gate that, lent, that leads itself to the broad way. There's no confinement at all. There's no need for the beatitude attitude when we get on that way. There's no need for the study of the word of God. There's no need for any kind of moral standards that we might have inside us because just anything goes because it's a wide open field. You might think of it that way. You can live with a mechanical kind of religion in our lives. It's nothing more than hypocrisy. You just go through the motions week to week. Sunday, what do you do? You get up, you get dressed, eat breakfast, read the paper, have a cup of coffee, and you go to church. Why do you do that? Because that's what you've always done. That's what your parents did. And there's a real danger there. Somehow we think that coming to church makes us holy. Somehow we think that coming to church makes us right with God. Beloved, it doesn't. It does not make you right with God. Now, does God up there going, oh, I don't want you to come to church? No, because hopefully you'll hear the word of God. You'll hear truth. And it will change you. But if you come into this place just thinking that somehow fulfilling an obligation on a Sunday morning, that somehow God is up there going, oh, good, you made it. Good. I'll bless you this week for that. You got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. I'll even go as far as to say, if you don't want to be here Sunday morning, if you don't wake up Sunday morning with kind of an eagerness in your heart to come to the house of God, the house of worship, and worship with other believers, if that doesn't excite you, you might want to stop and take pause at your own spirituality. Because if that doesn't excite you, you just, you're just fulfilling an obligation. I don't want to be crash in saying this, but you know what? It might be better you just stay home. Because then you're not fulfilling that, you know, that, that righteous kind of self-righteous thing. Yeah, I went to church this week. If you're coming here and you get nothing out of this, if it's not your desire to be here, why are you here? Out of guilt? I won't make you feel guilty if you don't come to church. It just reveals your spirituality. It just reveals where you're at. And then maybe when it's revealed, then we can look at it and say, okay, Let's, let's figure out why you feel this way. The problem with our churches today is they're filled with many a non-believer. Well, they believe in Jesus and they believe in going to church and they believe in all that, but they've never come to a point in time where they've come before a holy God and cried out and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And they meant it from the depths of their heart, that their heart was shattered, their heart was broken because of the horribleness of their own sin. That's the kind of point that God wants us to get to before he comes in and transforms us and makes us brand new in Christ. We have to have that repentant heart. But see, on this broad way, hey, just all come in. Everybody can come in. And it doesn't matter what, what you believe or what you do or whatever, you know, out there, that's fine. But in these four walls, it's a, quote, safe place. We won't judge you. See, the wide way doesn't require you to have any character whatsoever. You're just kind of like a, a, a dead leaf blowing in the wind, you might say. And you let the wind blow it wherever, wherever it blows. Oh, well, that's where I end up. There's no course in your life at all. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 once, real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Look at what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And you he made alive, he's talking to Christians here, who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, that's the present state of anybody who hasn't put their faith and trust in Christ. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. The last time, you, you know, when you ask a dead person a question, did they answer you? No, they're dead. They have no capacity within themselves to respond to anything. They were dead in trespasses and sins. And then it says this, lest you get too heady about yourselves, because he's talking to save people. He said, remember, in verse 2, in which you once walked according to what? What's it say? The course of this world. The course of this world. See, this is the, the broad way that we're talking about here. It's the course of this world. And it's, it's, it's ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. See, the problem is some, some people they come into the church and you know, they start feeling pretty religious about themselves, never been converted, and then all of a sudden they're judging everybody else who doesn't come to church. He's saying, hey, you know what, don't forget, you're not too far from them. If it wasn't for the grace of God, there you would be. And look at what he says in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, amen? Are you glad that God is rich in mercy? Because of his great love, are you, are you praise the Lord that we serve a loving God, with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses. In other words, there was nothing to love, <laughs> but he still loved us. See, that's the opposite of how we look at love. We look at love and we say, well, I'll love you, but what am I going to get out of it? We look at relationships that way. Well, I'm a friend, but what's in it for me? See, and this, Jesus is teaching just the opposite in Matthew 7. Remember, he said, do unto others as you would have them, what? Do unto you. He didn't say, do unto others because you want them to treat you nice. No, he said, think about how you would want people to treat you, and you just start treating people that way. Irregardless of how they treat you. They could spit in your face. Doesn't matter. That's the teaching of our Lord. That's far from where we've come. He said, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5, look at what he does. He made us alive together with Christ. See, uh, some people get caught up in the notion that somehow they find Christ or they get themselves saved or whatever. Beloved, it's purely a work of God. And there's some people out there, some Christians, that they think it's their duty to save everybody. And, you know, they're out there on this, this big, you know, crusade and, and they think that somehow they've got to go around and God's keeping track of everybody they talk to and whether or not they close the deal on that person's salvation. The better way to look at this, beloved, is to say, you know what? I'm a link in a chain. And if I share Christ with somebody, they may or may not come to Christ. I don't know. But at least I did what God has told me to do. And you let God do the convicting work. We don't need to play Holy Spirit here. Because that's what he says he will do. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. doesn't say by works. doesn't say by coming to church. doesn't say by being good. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. Take your eyes off of yourselves is really what that verse is saying. It's saying it's not about you. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man, anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. That's not the broad way. God prepared beforehand a way that we should walk. Are you walking on the path that God has you to walk? 
Did you go through the right gate? Did you enter by the narrow gate? Or did you enter by the broad gate? And you brought everything with you, and now you're just free to roam and believe whatever you want. Psalm 14, 12 sums up the broad way. He says this, There is a way which seems right unto man. Right? It seems right. Everything seems right about it. Somebody, you know, sometimes people come and they say, Man, this guy's church is so big. I mean, he's got 30,000, 40,000 people in his church. It's a coliseum. Are you saying that God's not blessing that? See, we live in a society that, well, the ends justifies the means. I mean, we can give away money and fill this place up. If that was our task, if that was our goal, we could change our message and fill this place up. There's a way which seems right onto men. How do we know whether it's right or not? You go to the Word of God. But see, a lot of these popular churches, they'll throw theology right out the door because we don't want to convict anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to divide the body of Christ. So we're just not going to teach on those touchy things. There's a way that seems right onto a man. But where's the end lead? It says, but the end is the way of death. That's where it ends. See, the wide way has no standards except those made by men to fit into their little comfortable system because it makes them feel good about themselves. Psalm 1.6, we read that, the way of the ungodly shall what? Shall perish. Now, in contrast to the wide way, which is just open to everybody and just walk through and, you know, you can sing kumbaya and hold hands and hug and do whatever. It doesn't matter what you believe, all that kind of stuff. That way leads unto death. There is a narrow way. And that's what Jesus talked about in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 7. He said, because narrow is the gate and difficult or narrow or confined or constricted is the way. The best translation of that Original language is a constricted way, a hard way. It's not easy. It's not broad. You can't bring everything in there. It literally speaks of being confined to this narrow path. And if you take one wrong step on the narrow path, you're going to fall off the cliff to your death. That's why in Ephesians 5 verse 15... Paul uses this language. He says, see then that you walk how? Circumspectly. And what's that mean, circumspectly? It means carefully. You better be careful. If you're walking across a tightrope, okay, and you're 100 feet in the air, I don't think you're just going to go, well, here we go. You're not going to do that. What are you going to do? You're going to have a device that balances you. And even those experts, they take every little caution with every little step. That's what he's talking about. Walking carefully. You can't just close your eyes and start walking. You must walk with your eyes open. Because the path is narrow. You need to see where you're going. It's, it's hemmed in on both sides. And I like to say it's hemmed, hemmed in on both sides by the word of God. That's what gives us the narrow path. That's what shows us what path to walk on. See, people take this and they throw it out, out, the, out the window and then they say, well, we can walk wherever we want now. This feels a little more comfortable. People don't like the narrow way, the confined way. Think about it. If you step off either side of this path, God is there with his word to go, hey, boom, get back on the path. Boom, get back on the path. Where do you think you're going? Boom. That's what it says. He'll chasten us. See, and we have people in today that are living in horrendous sin in the church today, and they're just, hey, well, God's not doing anything about it, so I guess, you know what? They're not on the confined way. So God's not going to do anything about it. They're on the wrong path. They're on the broad way. They can do whatever they want. I mean, the greatest... The, the, the greatest kind of a reassurance of your salvation. Some people wonder, you know, am I saved? Am I not saved? The greatest reassurance of your salvation is when you mess up, does God convict you? 
Are you convicted? Does God come along and say, boom, get back on that path? And you heed that, and you get back on the path. Because if that doesn't happen, if you can just go out and sin however you want, and you don't see the chastening hand of God that's promised in his word in the life in your life, maybe you're not one of his children. Maybe you're not on the right path. And I think you have to stop and you have to understand that. The requirements on this path are great. They're strict. They're clear-cut. There's no room for any deviation one way or the other. You must desire in your heart to fulfill these requirements. That's what the Word of God says. And if you fail the requirements that God has put you on the right path and you fail those requirements, he's going to chastise us because he loves us. What father wouldn't chastise his his children? You're not going to just let your children run in the freeway, run out in the middle of Jefferson. No, you're going to what? You're going to teach them, no, this is wrong. You can't run into oncoming traffic. This will not help you. This will hurt you. And you're going to show them that. You say, well, you know what? It sounds so restricted. It sounds so hard. It sounds so confined, such a narrow way. I don't think I would want that. Do you know what? In Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus says this. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is that? See, the wonderful thing about walking on the narrow path, on the narrow way, on the confined way, is that all the hardness of doing all the walking on that, it's, it's placed on Christ himself. That's why Paul said, hey, this life I live, you know, Christ lives through me. It's not me doing this. I couldn't do this. But it's, it's the life of Christ. It's the power of Christ. It's the spirit that works through me. But still, you have to be aware that you are asking what you're asking for when you walk on this narrow path. Turn over to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Look at verse 25 and 26. Now, the great... when. Uh, Now great multitudes went with him, speaking of Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, look at what Jesus says. Now think about this. Is this the message we hear in in churches today? Is this what we hear? I mean, you know, hey, we want tons of people to come here. Is this what we're going to tell them when they come? Verse 26, all these people are following Jesus. He turns around. And he looks at him and he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he what? He cannot be my disciple. Wow. I don't think Jesus stammered. I don't think Jesus stuttered. He just threw it right out there. All these hordes of people are following Jesus. Why? Because he's popular. Look at everybody. I mean, he's healing people. We want to see what's going on. We want to see all the miracles. We want to see him heal somebody else, raise somebody from the dead. All this. They're following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And he knows it. Jesus knows this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and you're following Jesus for the wrong reason, he knows it. He sees right through the game you're playing. Try that with the next person that you're out there sharing the gospel with and see what happens. If you want to be a Christian, you know what? First of all, you have to hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother in comparison to your love for Christ. Some of you maybe say, well, that's not hard. I already do, but, you know, I don't know. I can't vouch for your, your family problems, okay? That's not where we're going here. It's not a good thing to have that. But what Jesus is simply saying here, he says, you know what? You're going to have to step out of the crowd. You're going to have to say goodbye to everyone you love or you can't be my disciple. That's what he's saying. 
And not only that, then you're going to have to pick up the cross and live a crucified life day by day by day. Try preaching that at a next revival and see what kind of response you get when you give the invitation. I'm not saying nobody would respond, but you know who would respond? The people who should come forward. The people who want to make it the right kind of commitment to Christ. Jesus continued his line of thought through some illustrations in verse 28 there. He says, which of you intending to build a tower sits down first and counts the cost? In other words, you shouldn't start building something without analyzing what it's going to cost you. I mean, any one of us would say, well, that makes sense. Verse 31, he says, what king going to make war against another king sits not down first and with his counselors to see whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000. You'd be a fool not to do that if you were a king. Verse 33 says, Likewise, whoever he is of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who, who comes to Christ for salvation and commits his life to following him. It means a, a, a learner, okay? In the New Testament, when they would teach people how to write, they would take a clay tablet, and it would be just a, a piece of clay, and the, the teacher would take a little stylus, and he'd make an indention, kind of an indent of the alphabet, alpha, beta, and so forth, in the, in the clay. And the student would come along, and he'd take the stylus from the teacher, and he'd follow, trace those letters till he could finally do it without even the, the clay, and he could just do it on paper. He was following the path of his teacher. See, Jesus drew a hard line. We don't, I, I, this is hard to preach. I mean, this is hard to even think about for my own personal life. If you're not willing to say no to everything and walk on that narrow path, he says, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not walk the narrow path, remember, it's God who gives us the grace and the strength and the mercy to do so. You can't walk on that narrow path by yourself. See, it all comes back to our dependence on him. And see, the Pharisees of the day, they didn't want to hear this. They come up with their own religion and they could fulfill their own, you know, things and go out and, you know, pray on the corners so where everybody could see him and dress up in all the religious garb and, and do all sorts of things fast and put ashes on their heads so they looked real bad. And, and, and then, you know, everybody look at them and say, well, how righteous they are. Look at how holy they are. Look at how, you know, incredibly just religious they are. And God says, no, that doesn't. That doesn't fly with me. You don't think I see through that scam? I see through that hypocrisy? You're just doing that to get a reaction from people. Comes full circle. Why are you here this morning? Here because you want to be? Here because you want to grow in your faith? Here because you want to hear the truth? Maybe you're here and you want to come to Christ? I don't know, but God does. You can't walk on this narrow path by yourself. But God will promise. He promises to give you the grace and his strength to cover that weakness that you have. We all have it. If you're willing to live the way he wants you to, then you're coming to him the right way. You've entered through the narrow gate and you're on the, the, the constrained path. And on that path, it's not like you just make it, you know, run up to the top of the mountain on this, on this path. He, there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. Jesus told his disciples, the time comes <clears throat> that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. You don't think that people are killing Christians in the world today thinking that they're serving their false pagan God? The people who did 9-11 ran those planes into those buildings. They, went, they just didn't wake up one day and go, hey, let's go get some jets and run them into buildings and kill a bunch of people. They really believed they were doing the will of their God.
You're going to spend your life running from those who want to persecute you when you're on this road. You can't be walked in bare feet casually. You're not walking through some luscious meadow somewhere. The road is hard. It's covered with rocks. It hurts your feet. You've got to be careful where you walk. You've got to work, walk circumspectly. Be very careful, placing each foot down at a time. See, Jesus never presented Christianity as this soft option for the weak-hearted. He never did that. He did just the opposite. When you go through that narrow gate and you're on that narrow path, you're basically declaring war on hell. That's what you're doing. And the hell fighters are not going to just take that and go, oh, well, who cares? They're going to strike back with everything they have. That's why you have to live your life with a beatitude, kind of an attitude. You must constantly deal with your pride and your selfish desires. We all have to deal with that daily. John 21, 15 to 19, basically what Peter heard from his Lord Jesus was, follow me, and by the way, you know what? It's going to cost you your life. You're going to have to be willing to give up your life. Do we come to Christ on those terms? That's what the narrow way is. That's what the Word of God says. It's hard. It's confined. It's pressed. And if you wander off that path, because sometimes you want to do your own thing, God will chastise you. I say it sounds too hard. I can't do it. You're right. You can't. That's why you need the grace of God. Jesus says he'll bear that burden on his shoulders for you. Two ways, the narrow and the broad. It's interesting. You have two gates. You have two ways. These two ways lead to two destinations. In Matthew 7, verse 13, the broad way, it says, leads to where? Destruction. And the narrow way leads on to life. See, this is a choice that Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, Elijah, Jesus all put before the people. Nothing's changed here. There's a way of life and there's a way of destruction. There's a way of death. Psalm 1 said, The godly are blessed and the ungodly shall what? Shall perish. The word destruction there ultimately refers to ultimate eternal judgment in hell. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about you'll just be destroyed and you'll be no more. See, our souls are eternal. You don't just die and they bury you in the ground and that's it. Game over. It doesn't work that way. There's only two things in this world that are eternal as we know it today. It's the Word of God and it's our souls. And it seems that in most churches, they're not concerned with either one. The Lord says that everyone will end up in one of two places. One of two places. All the religions of the world, except the religion of divine accomplishment through Jesus Christ, all the religions of the world will end up in the same place, in destruction, in hell. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how giving they are. I don't care anything more about them. I just know that if they're not following the way of Christ, they're going to end up in hell. That sounds narrow. That sounds hard-lined. That's, that's what the Bible says. And it's easy to go on the path that leads that way to destruction because you can take everything you want with it, with you, and it just makes you feel good. There's no standards But when you reach the end of the path, beloved, trust me, things will get very, very, very rough. There are no restrictions. There's plenty of people along the way. You know, you just feel like you're going to a big party. You know, these ways and these destinations, the ways are just the opposite. The narrow way is very confined while we're here on earth, but the moment we pass from this earth into eternity, all of a sudden we're opened up, and we feel like we're in the biggest, largest, beautiful meadow there is, and there's love and joy and peace and loving kind. All those things are there. 
and the Broadway that, that leads us down this path where everybody's gone and it's just a big party. Well, basically, it funnels down to one place, hell. And mark my words, everyone on that way will end up there. And it's not going to be a party. It's a place of utter darkness, of gnashing and weeping of teeth. All, all the things the Bible says about hell, not one is good. Not one is even, well, I guess I could live with that. You know, you hear people say, well, I'm just going to go out there and party with my friends. No, you're not. Do you know what utter darkness is like? Utter darkness, it means you can't see the hand in front of your face. You're going to be placed in flames that constantly for eternity will burn, but you'll never be burned up. Have you ever just gotten a little burn? Just a little. I I drove down to Salinas yesterday on my motorcycle to watch the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds in an air show. And I got there and I was leaning and wasn't sitting on the bike after I got there. I was just on this road in the middle of a cornfield, but uh, I was was leaning there up against the bike, bike and my, I had shorts on and my calf just touched the exhaust pipe just quickly just oh boy that hurt it really hurt and i thought for a minute and i thought man i've been studying this all can you imagine what it would be like to have your entire body enveloped in flames the torture the torment and to realize that you can't just think i'm just gonna die I mean, of all the ways to die, that's got to be the most horrible way to go is to be burned in some wreck or burned alive or whatever. That's got to be horrible because you're conscious of all the stuff that's going on around you. And unlike today, you get to a point probably where your body just shuts down and you pass out because the pain is just so intense. Here, it doesn't. It continues forever. John Bunyan said this, the entrance of hell is from the portals of heaven. See, what a shock some people are going to have when they realize that they're going to hell. They're going to be going, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. This is getting a little tight down here and uh, it's getting a little hot. You mean all that stuff I did in the church and all that, blah, 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 blah. I'm on my way to hell. They're going to be shocked. The Broadway narrows down to a terrible pit. But the narrow way opens up into the fullness of everlasting fellowship, of joy with God that we can't even imagine. See, eternal life is not something that's quantitative, it's qualitative. It's a way of life. And what God is doing, what Jesus is doing, he's saying, you know what? It's before you. You're going to choose which way. You're going to either go through the broad way, have a party here, and pay for it later, or you're going to go through the narrow way, and maybe it's not going to be a party now, but you know what? In the end... There's blessing beyond blessing. Consider the destination of the way you choose because you're going to spend eternity there. There's no turning back. When I was down there, I was going to go park where the airport was, and I thought, ah, I don't want to pay 10 bucks. And, you know, there was a a double-double yellow line, and and, uh, I went to turn around on my motorcycle, thinking, well, I'll just kind of turn around real quick before I get into these cones and everything because I don't want to be funneled into the airport. And when I turned around, there's cars coming at me. And I was like, whoa. You know, luckily I was on a motorcycle and I just kind of stayed in my lane, and, but I wasn't supposed to turn around. Once you got committed, you were supposed to continue on this thing. See, when you're on this path, you're not going to be able to turn around. It's going to be impossible. Well, how will men choose? How, how do men choose between these two? You think, boy, you know, you painted such a horrible picture today of hell and such a, a wonderful picture of, of the narrow way that leads to life. What kind of idiot would want to go to hell? Who would say, oh, I'm gone, yeah. There's two crowds. It says it here in Matthew 7, 13. It says, the broad is the way that leads to destruction. And how many? What's it say? Many there will be that go in that way. Many will be on the broad way. Verse 14 says, Hard is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. See, it's amazing to me that in our world today, most people are on the, on the path of human achievement. Because it makes them feel good. 
they can do all these things, and people say, oh, look at how spiritual you You know, they're on the road of human, they come through the wrong gate. They never went through the narrow gate. God never changed their heart. They're just playing this facade. And they've learned it so well that they actually are beginning to believe the lie. They're actually beginning to believe it. You know, there's people that, that in criminal activity that upstairs they don't have it all together sometimes and they put themselves in situations and eventually, you know, after they do this for a period of time over and over and over again, when you talk to them, they actually believe they're the person that, that they think, you know, in their mind they are. They're not just John that lives across the street. No, they're this superhero that goes out at night and it's strange. But they really believe it. Why? Because they, they just practice it so long in their mind and, they, and just, you know, that's the way they live their life. I mean, we call them kind of, you know, not together upstairs. A little psychotic, a little strange. But they, they, it's not that they're putting on an act. They really believe that. See, the danger here is that you've gone through the broad gate because it felt good. You're on the broad way. And you think you're on the narrow way. You think that you're part of the righteous when you're not. According to... The Bible, basically, there's always been a remnant, which means a small number of people who believe. There's always been that. It's always been the masses who don't. It's always been the masses who don't follow Christ. The only exception with that in in history, and we haven't been there yet, but the one time in God's redemptive history that there will be a unique turning to the Lord is the time of the tribulation. Because in the time of the tribulation, according to Revelation 7, there will be innumerable multitudes of Gentiles saved out of every nation, language, and people, the Bible says. And also, there will be redeemed people from the nation of Israel saved. And there will be this massive response to the gospel during the tribulation. Many people will respond to Christ. But for the age we live in today, the response to Christ is small. It just is. Because men would rather hold on to their own sin and face eternal damnation than give it up. Because they're in love with themselves, they're in love with the flesh, they're in love with with everything this world has to offer. Jesus said in Matthew or John three nineteen that men love their what? Their darkness. When does all the crime and the horrible stuff happen? A lot of it happens at night. You know, when do all these clubs and all these weird places fill up? It fills up at night. You ever think about that? That's not just a coincidence. Two crowds. There's a little crowd on the narrow way. In, in Luke 12, 32, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, Fear not, little flock. That word little in the Greek is micron. We get a micrometer from it. We get a, a small little measurement. It's, to, it's something very, very small. He uses the same words as a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. See, there's only a few people who seek the way to heaven with all their hearts. There's only a very few people who agonize over their inability to enter heaven to the point where they're willing to count on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk through the narrow gate. There's only a few There's not a lot. Sometimes my wife and I talk, and she goes, don't you get discouraged? About what? (laughs) Not generally. Well, you know, it just seems like the church, you know, it's not growing. You know, it just seems, you know, you think da-da-da-da. I said, no, I don't. I mean, would be to God that we'd have five people here, 500 people here on a Sunday, five people, oops, 500 people here on a Sunday. I mean, but you know what? I don't see people flocking to people teaching the truth about the Word of God. Especially in our area. The Bible says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, for many are called, but few are what? Chosen. See, the small crowd is on the narrow way. Well, there's a large crowd on the broad way. See, it's easy to choose the broad way. You just go with the crowd. You just try to add Jesus to everything else in your life and you feel religious and you go to church and you just kind of do the church thing and, and pretty soon, you know, you think that you're, you're in some form of, of the graces of God, but really you're not. You're on your way to hell, but you just don't know it. 
See, remember these two gates that we looked at. One isn't saying this way to hell, this way to heaven. It's not saying that. This was saying this way to heaven. The Broadway is also saying this way to heaven. They're both pointing to heaven. They both have signs over it. This way to heaven. You can join a system of religion that points to heaven and never really deny yourself. And when you don't deny yourself, you end up with disaster in the end. In Luke 13, verse 24, Jesus said, Strive to enter the narrow gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter it and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, listen to this, I know you not from where you are. And you shall begin to say, we have eaten and have drunk in your presence and you have taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not from where you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And the Bible goes on, it says, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are, la- and there are last who shall be first, and there are the first who shall be last. Jesus was not talking about irreligious people here. He wasn't talking about just purely pagan people here. He was talking about religious people. He referred to the religious people who thought they were on the right road, that all of a sudden the door is locked, shut, and they're going, hey, wait a minute. We want to come in. No. Jesus said many will be on that broad road. Even in our own text, down in verse 22, Matthew 7. This haunts me. These verses just haunt me as a pastor because I'm thinking, man, how do you know? It says in verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? That's a pretty big deal. Have we not done many wonders in your name? They even call him Lord. In verse 23, he says, And then I will declare to them, what's he say? I never knew you. Depart from you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Can you imagine the horror? Can you imagine the shock? See, many people are on that broad road and they're going to find out one day that they're not on the road to heaven. They're on the road to hell. And they're going to be incredibly shocked. I don't want that to happen to you. I I wouldn't want that to happen to anybody. I mean, there are times in my life where I I look at my own heart and I'm like, okay, I'm sure I'm on the right road. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with assuring yourself that you are saved, assuring yourself that that God is working in your life. See, if you're the same person when you, quote, got saved that you are today and say you got saved 2, 3, 20, 40 years ago, whatever, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. It never took. You were never really saved. Maybe you came to a church and raised your hand or, or, you know, filled out a little card or prayed a prayer or somebody prayed a prayer for you. All that stuff is irrelevant. See, the point is, did God transform your life? Do you find your life different before Christ and now that you claim to know Christ, is it different? doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but is it different? Do you have different desires? I mean, I never really get the idea. I talk to some people, you know, and you know, they'll go on vacation. And I kind of say, oh, that's cool. I said, you know, I'm kind of curious. You know, I don't get to, to, to go to a lot of other churches now and then. So, I, you know, I'm always curious. Well, where'd you, oh, we were on vacation. We didn't go to church. I'm like, what? Oh, we don't do that on vacation. What do you mean you don't do it on vacation? I mean, I, I don't say that to them. I just go, oh. But, I mean, I want to grab them by the throat and go, what are you thinking? You take a break from God? 
I mean, so how do you live the rest of your week when you're not in church? The rest of your, your you know, I, I just, that, that just blows my mind. You know, there, there's something within me that God put there when I, the moment I got saved that, you know what? I want to be around God's people. And I don't even like people. I'm not a social kind of individual. I should clarify this. People are going, what kind of pastor is this guy? But I don't do well in big crowds and stuff. But you know what? There's something about being with God's people, singing praises and and songs to him and hearing God's word and growing in your faith. That excites me. You know, if that excites you, what do you do on Saturday night? Because you know what? If if I'm going to a big ball game on, on Saturday... And, and I'm, I'm planning for it and I'm excited about it. You know, Friday night, I'm not going to be up till 3 in the morning doing something. I'm, I'm excited. I want to get rested up. So that Saturday comes and I go to that ball game, I'm ready. And so many times, you know, Saturday night, we're out doing whatever. We haven't even thought about Sunday morning church. And then we drag ourselves out of, out of bed Sunday morning and we're lucky even to get in the doors here by 10.05 or 10.10, whenever we start. And, you know... That, that troubles me. It's like you're here. Why are you here? There should be an excitement in your... See, this is a celebration of what God has done in your life all week long. That's why we call it a celebration and worship and praise service. Okay, this isn't just coming... If you're coming here just to get a shot in the arm and hope they sing my song and hope, hope I get through the next week... That's not what this is about. This is about the body of Christ coming together as commanded in the book of Acts for prayer, for the teaching, for, for singing and, and worshiping God to build the body of Christ up. It's an exciting time. It should be an exciting time. We should desire to spend time with God's people. Not just come here, you know, and oh, sorry, it's going a little long, you know, I'm going to slip out. Fellowship time, I don't do that. Sorry, I just, I don't do that. Don't have time in my schedule to do that. You expect me to be in a grace care group? You know, a care group, a small group of people during the week? What are you, crazy? There's no way. My schedule. Where's your heart? Is it for God or not? Are you on the right path or not? This isn't a work salvation thing. We're saved by the grace of God. But after we get saved, surely God expects something from us. He changes our heart. He gives us new desires. We've got to go through that narrow gate. We've got to go through it alone. And we've got to go through it repentantly. And we've got to go through it with a heart for God. We should be willing to give up everything in order to serve him, to love him, to gather with God's people. I mean, I'm not saying you're, you're, you're here seven days a week. However, in the New Testament, they probably were. But I realize our culture's not there. But, I mean, come on. You think two hours on a Sunday morning does it? That's sad. To make no choice at all, just to let you know. You can't be neutral on this thing. To make no choice at all, you've already made your choice. You've already made it. And you'll face the consequences of that decision in the end. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have put before us a way of life and a way of death. And Lord, I'm confident that most of the people here this morning, I pray that most of the people here this morning are on the way of life that they've entered through the narrow gate, they're on the narrow way, they understand what it means to sacrifice for the cause of Christ, and they're willing to. I see that in many of our people. And I thank you for that. But I, I, I still cannot believe that maybe there's somebody here this morning who honestly has looked at their life in this last 60 minutes and said, you know what? That's kind of describing me. Maybe you don't have the security of your own salvation because you don't have salvation. Maybe you've never come to Christ, a broken individual, over your sin. This isn't a feel-good session. Jesus wasn't into that psychological mumbo-jumbo stuff. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Everyone in this room needs the grace of God. 
It comes to those who reach out and ask for it. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Change me. Father, I pray that people would pray that prayer today. They would mean it from their heart. That you would just transform their lives. That you would give us a new excitement about being able to come together with the people of God to worship you. And Lord, help us not to forget that our task at hand is to reach out and and to touch a lost and dying world with the gospel of Christ. Father, I pray for that that veteran who someone gave a track to earlier this morning at the coffee shop. I pray that as he reads through that, Lord, that you would convict his heart of his sin. And Lord, that he would cry out to you, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, that you would show him the truth that's there before him. Only you can do that. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, amen.